Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Watch out, eh? Watch out, eh? Which is, of course, Canadian for Achtung, Achtung. One of my very best friends is Canadian. I'm a sh- I, f- I feel dirty after doing that. I really do. Um, <laughs> uh, um, if you're listening, on day of release, it's February the 8th, um, uh, 77 years to the day since the launch of Operation Veritable under Field Marshal Montgomery. Oh, dear. The first Canadian army. I mean, this battle. Fighting uh, more under Third- General Simons, I think, rather than Monty. Well, it's it's under everybody, isn't it? Um, yeah. You know, um, you've got the First Canadian Army, um, yeah. Thirty Corps, the flooded Reichswald, northern part of a pincer movement from Holland to Germany, coming out yeah. of Nime again. The whole thing. It's like the, and you look at you look at the map of Veritable. Um, this is an enormous push. The First yeah. Canadian Army, Second Second Twenty uh, First uh, uh, Army Group, Ninth yeah. under Simpson, Hodges down at the bottom doing his bit. Around Monchau, yep. you know. Well, it's a two-fisted punch, isn't it? Because yeah. um, Simpson's Ninth Army is is, uh, although American, is attached to 21st Army Group for this operation, yep. and is yep. is is the sort of second part, the yep. right-handed fist of the punch. Yeah. Um. And they, and they meet before the Rhine, don't they? In the sort of yeah. southern part of the Rhineland, south of kind of sort of Goch and Issam, around that kind yeah. of. Area. In fact, actually, I remember the Sherwood Rangers bumped in, nearly shot at some Americans. I think. That's right. Yeah. Um, just yeah, south so of the, south so of Issam. Ninth are doing grenade, aren't they? And twenty-first right, yeah. army group are doing veritable. And and the idea is that Ninth Army punch up sort of uh um northeast, don't they? And yeah. and uh and twenty-first army group are pu- well the Canadian first army really are punching down um, That's right. f- from from the island at Nymagan. Well, from by by Nymagan, out of the you know, the gross big heights and all that. And I, I I was um the weekend I was scrabbling around in the um 79th Armoured Division official history. or, or Oh, yes. So weirdly. Well, is it an official history? It's hard to say. Apparently it was written by... It's a, it's um, a sort of sanctioned it's, yes, history, it's, isn't it's it? It's anonymous. Apparently it was written by... Because um, uh, um, I, I sent it over to Andy Aitchison, one of our regular listeners, Andy Aitchison's. We all, if you're a regular listener, you know who Andy is, who's um, into the um, uh, 52nd Lowland Division for some reason. He's totally obsessed with it. But basically they keep coming up in it. Because this book... the. 79th Armour Division thing is is like uh, it's a you know this is the everything we did because after all they didn't fight as a division they were attached they were yeah. formed into wings and then the wings were w- wings were allocated through um, uh, uh, different parts of 21st Army Group anyway 
<laughs> I'm not really sure. What I'm not sure of is why First Canadian Army, having done all that stuff in the Scheldt till kind of you know November, are suddenly kind of switched over to over to Veritable, given Thirty Corps, which is part of Second Army, yeah, uh, British Second Army, yeah. Um, I, I just don't really get why that happens, and I don't really get what Dempsey's doing at this point. Is he just preparing for the crossing of the Rhine? Is that he's just everything's gearing up for the Rhine crossing? But anyway, there's a bit in the, there's a bit in this book, right? Um, <laughs> uh, here we go. Um, meanwhile, Cleaver was clear, and a jock column of tanks, armoured cars, and carriers, with infantry carried in the kangaroos of First Canadian Armoured Carrier Regiment and two troops of 49th Armoured Personnel Carrier Regiment, set out for Kalkar. North of Bedburg, the leading tanks struck an enemy anti-tank screen of guns and Panzerfaust positions. Right? Check this. Check out what happens next. Kangaroos dropped their infantry, and then were ordered to take the lead. Right? So they're using the kangaroos. To, with, no, we know one in them. With the, just the drivers in them, they're using the kangaroos to go forward to locate the anti-tank guns, so they can. I mean, Jesus. So they're they're they're. I'm advancing. sorry, Charlie. You're going to have to drive into a hell of fire. Exactly. They're advancing to contact with the enemy to to, to because after all, you don't want to lose tanks, but kangaroos you can you can afford with to one lose. bloke in. Yeah. Wow. And did, it the, hard, does it say how many people it get, was hardly how many surprised, get? It was hardly surprising that seven of their number were knocked out. Wow, of how many? Um, it 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 doesn't specify how many, but but, but they, <laughs> nine. But, yeah, exactly, or, or a dozen, you know. Like, but there, there you go, because because you know the if the leading nine, tanks man. hit the anti-tank screen, that's no good. You know, you want the <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's a short straw, isn't it? Yeah, that's a massively short straw. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm sure I recorded, I, I photographed it once when I was down at Bovington, but I now can't find it. So that might just be in my imagination. But it just looked, you know, when you sent it to me, it looked incredibly familiar. But you can get it on Kindle, yeah. you think? Yeah, I got it on Kindle because I was, I, I was sort of, um, I've gone down a Percy Hobart rabbit hole. Um, oh, is he one of your couple. commanders? No, he's not. He's not. I thought, I thought about putting him in, but he's not. And also, I've got enough tank chat. In the, yeah. the the chapter about the desert, there's enough tank chat in the Tuca chapter because Tuca talks about, you know, what we really wanted from a tank. Why couldn't they have built a tank that was useful in all theatres? And you sort of think, well, mm. because because they were really expecting to only use tanks in France. Um, they weren't expecting to use them anywhere else. That's why they were shit in the desert, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. T- t- tough luck. And then he sort of says, well, yeah, but by the, when the Sherman came along, it didn't need any mod, you know, need minor modification for the desert, all round tank with a proper weapon but you think the goalposts have moved so far and so fast since you know britain was laying down tanks in 37 38 yeah i don't know that i you know he's basically he he he, he i mean it's really interesting because he also talks about you know that that, that all the anti, all the tanks and anti-tank weapons that they've got in the desert were designed for close country in france and work would still work would still be working perfectly well in close country in france but Which is why the Germans, I suppose, to a certain extent, we're still using 1940 tanks in yeah. Normandy, weren't they? Yeah, 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 exactly. Anyway, but but ex- exact exactly. But um, but no. So I've gone down this Hobart rabbit hole, and the, and the thing that keeps coming up is this fact that he um he was named as the co-respondent in someone's divorce, one of his pupils' divorce at Staff College, and that's why people don't like him. And that's the that's big amazing, obst- isn't it? That's, the, that's a big obstacle. Yeah, and he's regarded as a bully, and if th- no one believe if if you don't if you don't go along with his ideas, he really he he'll haul you over the coals and all that. Is but, he a bit but, of a my way or the highway? 
Yeah, completely, completely. But basically, but basically, Andy's a rotter because he because he pinched someone <laughs> had a cat. So, so a cat. do you? I mean, do you get the impression? I mean, would you like to sat down and had dinner with him? Yes, obviously. Oh, of course, but, you want to pick you, his. You want to pick his brains, but you but know. do you think he was an unpleasant bloke? I think he probably really was. And, uh, uh, um, uh, because he needs, he needs Brooke to protect him. In, and in the end, Brooke steps forward and offers him his patronage and protection. But, uh, but it takes a while. Um, and up to then, he's relying on Churchill because Churchill keeps saying, What's going on? Why aren't you using this, this chat with all the brilliant ideas? And Brooke's, Brooke's basically, well, because he's, because everyone hates him. And because yeah. he's, you know, because, he, he, you know, he's, he's doing a lot of that sort of, um, uh, AFE research between the wars and thinks that everyone's an idiot that doesn't agree with him. And he, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's, I mean, it's amazing though how big 79th Armour Division is by 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 its high watermark, which is basically in the run up to the Rhine crossing. So the campaign we're talking about now: five brigades, seventeen consisting of seventeen regiments, divisional strength of twenty one thousand four hundred thirty all ranks. Goodness, one thousand five hundred sixty six tracked AFE. How much? Has a, 1,566. The wow. normal armoured division is 14,400 14, ranks and 350 AFPs. Goodness. That is quite enlarged, isn't it? It's the biggest division in the army. Blimey. But, but of course... And, 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 and quite often it, gets, it spends its time not operating as a division, does it? Well, it's not a division. That's the point, is it doesn't fight as a division. It's a sort of... It's, it, you know, it's interesting... It's a kind of... Using, it spreads yeah. all over the place. Yeah, it's interesting they keep using the word wing. So, you know, they, they set these wings up. And, the, mm. and the, 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 that, the account of the training in the run-up to um, Plunder is really interesting. They set up a training school on the Mars and uh, and they get the DDs back out. They get the DD tanks yep. out again. And they, they come up with a carpet-laying uh, scheme for, like, you know, basically. But, and, and DDs are pretty good on a river, aren't they? Because there's no great big wind. It's just... yes, yes, but your problem is the muddy bank. So they ah. they have to find a way of getting the they have to find a way of getting the carpet onto the bank before the DDs come. So there's always you know it's always this thing with landing is that there's always one more thing in front of the thing, you know. The, yes. The, you know, and and the, I mean the the start of the book there's the account of D Day and you know Le Hamel for instance that Avery that's blundering about um, mm. uh, uh, Corso sur Mer you know and yes. and the, you know what's really interesting in that is that. This book was written in 46 and it's John Borthwick, I think, who, who was his ADC that wrote it. So the 1946 account of D-Day is complete chaos. It's um, these were late. They arrived on time. The Avery's arrived before the thing that was supposed to be. You know, it's it's complete. It's just acknowledging the sh sheer chaos of it, partly so he can then say. But nevertheless, 79th Armour Division, you know, powered on through and met its objectives. Well, but it's really, well, it's... really sort of frank about the chaos. Well, our, our chum... Steve Fisher is doing a book on Sword yeah. Beach. Yeah. And um, the work he's, uh, that I've read of it, it looks absolutely fantastic. I mean, and yeah. written beautifully as well. Really entertaining. I mean, he, he really understands the importance of human drama in the narrative. Yeah. yeah. Um, I just think Stephen Fisher's book is going to be, I, I reckon it's going to be such an important work, actually, because I think yeah. for the first time, someone is going to forensically look at not just the landings, but at the naval operation, which, of course, yeah. enables the landings. The yeah. two are absolutely inextricably linked when it comes to D-Day, yeah. but but usually separated in the narrative. Yeah, yeah. So so you get a little bit of, you know, landing craft came in, it's a little bit chaotic, then they landed. 
But, yeah. but what you're going to see is actually the processes by which the weather intervened and, <laughs> the, the, and, and what they did as a result of that. Yeah. And Sword Beach is interesting because it's the largest um, single division landing yeah. um, of D-Day. Yeah, because the other beaches, obviously, you know, there's two two divisions at Gold, two divisions at at, at, at Omaha, but there are, yeah. I think, it's swollen to twenty three and a half thousand men yeah. because of the commandos and everything as well. Yeah, in this incredibly narrow beachfront, with a very very high tide. Anyway, I'm sort of digressing, but but yeah, the point yeah, is, yeah, I think yeah. I think that will be really really fascinating. We're talking about the sort of the chaos that comes across in the um, 79th Armored Division book booklet that was written in 1946. Yeah, I think suddenly. With Steve's book, we might have a a much clearer picture of exactly what that chaos was. If it's yeah, me. yeah. Well, I mean, the, which I think the is really is, exciting. Well, the thing is, is that the, the impression you get from this is that is that is the, the, there's a clear depiction of chaos, and you're getting your head around it. It's <laughs> really, really quite something, you know. Uh, and you know, it's it's stuff like um, they, they chuck in that you'll chuck a scene in a tank trap. Right. And it won't it won't be enough. So you've got this thing where someone parks his avery in the in the hole and they put a bridge over the avery. You know, they the 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 thing to do actually is use a tank as a bridge. Yeah. And it and all of this obviously is happening under fire. So you you know, if a tank if an avery's knocked out, the crew get out there they're killed or injured by mortaring, and you're trying to put an assault in, and then obviously you know, either the either the tanks, either the you know the armored regiments they're supporting have t- just turned up, or they haven't arrived yep. yet, or they got yep. there first, yep. and everyone's everyone's ha- tr- having to make sense of what's going on. I mean, that I keep I, I, I've the other thing in in the other thing I've been sort of mulling this week has been this. You know, when, very often when talking about the Battle of Normandy, people say, "Well, of course, the Germans are terribly well, or all very experienced because." You know they do. They're doing. They do well because they're very experienced. Because they've been fighting the Russians for, for however long, right? And and a large chunk of the inv- British army, certainly the invasion army, the American army too, is completely green, right? Um, and it's just been all it's been doing the last three years really has been training in preparation for this moment. Um, in which case, I think they did really well. It's the, my conclusion. <laughs> my conclusion. My conclusion from that is that well, then they do really fantastically well, don't they? Like given. Given that, given that, you know, an awful lot of people landing on on, on uh, in Normandy, you know, it's their first contact with well, the enemy. Yes, and stop. and in circumstances which they absolutely haven't been prepared for, <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah. you know, raging winds and sort of swell yeah. and 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 um, yeah. you know, landing craft being turned ninety degrees to the direction yeah. they should be, etc., etc., etc. I I agree with you. I think it's remarkable how successful it is, and that tells you two things. That 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 tells you that that the navy was exceptional yeah it, it tells you actually it tells you three things that's one thing it tells <laughs> you that that the people landing were better trained than a lot of us give them credit for yes and it also tells you the germans weren't very good well well maybe maybe i mean maybe you can glean on the, the crust well maybe you can glean, glean maybe you but but let, let's say we accept the idea that the germans are really are really experienced right that that that, that their officer certainly their officer and their nco you know, spine that runs through things is very, very mm. experienced. Obviously, fighting a different kind of enemy in a different in a different environment, right? You know, not in close country, just as we just been talking about, not in close country and without the air sort of air advantage they probably have on the Eastern Front, right? Quite. Yeah. I mean, they're more evenly matched on the Eastern Front, air wise, right? But but 
Let, but let's accept that they're pretty good. It, you know, because I it, so it, le- it leads me to the conclusion that actually the British Army's training by this point is pretty is really really good. So yeah. so that you know that 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 actually it's not that they're crap when they land and that's where the problems come from. The problems come from all sorts of other all these other things that you need to you need to toss in because you, because you know they've sorted out where they're getting their officers from. They've got battle yeah. drills. They've got yes. um proper combat schools and all this sort of stuff worked out. Obviously, rehearsing together operation, uh, you know, in exercises, doing combined hours is basically impossible because of the lack of space, which we talked about before. And also just moving everyone around and matching everyone up, you know, is is that much harder. But, but... It, I just I just keep coming back to this because I'm happy well, to because I'm happy to accept the idea that the Germans in Normandy must be pretty good. I'm happy. I'm, I, I don't I don't reg- I don't see that. Don't see, you know, in the art in the debate. Don't feel that that's a concession. Having I mean, you don't have to concede that that they, uh, the chances are they would be because after all the after all after uh, and obviously the officer corps has been winnowed away and NCO base has been winnowed away by five years of fighting. But also they went into the war up for it. With a, with they have a staff college tradition. They have the, you know all the officer tradition and NCO training tradition in place in a way that the British Army is having to invent after all, because the British. Well, Army, actually, you're right, what... aren't you? Because if you think of Colonel Krug at at, um, yeah. at Hillman, I mean, he's exceptional yeah. in crew experience. Yeah. If you think of that um, that young um, lieutenant um, at Utah Beach, yeah. um, who's a who is has got an Iron Cross first class and as. Um, yeah. An Eastern Front veteran, you know, even at Omaha Beach, um, there is, uh, um, I mean, just to sort of actually back up what you're saying, Al. Yeah. But that actually amongst all the kind of Ost battalions and sort of Eastern um, um, troops who don't want to be there and aren't really interested in fighting, there is absolutely, you're quite right, that spine of pretty decent experienced officers and senior NCO. So I I, I would back up on that. And, you know, lots of well-motivated Falschimjäger and all that sort of thing, you know. All that kind of thing as well. But I suppose what my, my, my point about that is, is that, you know, if a sign of you know one of the criticisms against against the British and indeed the Americans and the Canadians is yeah. that they're all a bit sheep like and you know they don't have yeah. that kind of tactical flair and ability to initiative in the same way that you know perhaps the Germans do. Um, but actually, what D Day shows you is you know if you want to look at sort of how, how good an army is, it's how can, how how good is it at adapting to an alien situation for which it's not yeah. prepared, yeah. and and D Day is that situation because nothing that they've prepared actually happens because of the appalling weather and the kind of chaos on the beaches and the tides being much higher than they should be and all the rest of it. And yet they still pull it off and they pull it off. But even that in the telling of D-Day is kind of like, oh, they have to postpone for a day because of the weather. And then Ike says, let's go. And then, and then so D-Day's on. Not like the, and the consequences of that decision for the, for how the operation run are X, Y, Z, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of, oh, so the parachute drops are scattered. Well, what does that mean for airborne, landing if, if <laughs> yes. you're sc- scattered it means it means yes. it means you're immediately in a in a state of complete disorganization especially as uh, you know a lot of the way they've been rehear- airborne forces rehearse for battle is they lorry up they they get out of a lorry to place to say well this is where you've landed and now you've got to tab five miles to your objectives or whatever you know that, that that's how some of how they've been practicing because obviously it's impractical to have transport aircraft dropping people all the time in any way they are. The transport fleet, even by the time of D-Day, isn't up to actual the strength required to put in three divisions. 
So, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, and I, I sort of think, but do you compare this to Veritable, by which time the British 21st Army Group, Canadian First Army, the Americans, everyone's incredibly experienced, right? And the problem is the weather. The problem again is the weather. So, so you know, they're well by then. Yes. They've by then they're super experienced. You know, they're super experienced because they've been fighting since since June. They're confident because they're winning. They're they're um you know even with replacements coming through the training's good and you know and there's a there is a man there is a manpower sort of pinch going on. But because you know because right after all riflemen are where that where you're burning people up the most. But the point but the point is is. Then what the, you know, the weather is the trouble here, the time of year, you know, as much as as much as the Germans being very well experienced and all that sort of stuff. You know, you, so I sort of think that, that, that we could you can talk about it like that if you want. You can say, oh, the Germans are more experienced, which accords them this advantage and makes them a tough nut to crack. But you've also got to you've got to in which case, how do you explain how D-Day goes? You know, and I've been because I've been writing about, you know, for the commander's book, I've done. Alistair Pearson, who's the, you know, the eight, eight para colonel, who's really, really interesting because in all the accounts, and I got Gale's 1946 with the 6th Airborne Division in Normandy. Yeah, following. yeah, that's absolutely brilliant. And he me. does the same thing as they all do. They all go on about, Pearson was e easily the best battalion commander we had in the division, a complete natural soldier with a tactical sixth sense and, you know, quietly spoken and calm under any circumstances. And then he never mentions him again in his account. And in the and in in Otway, you know the Otway account, easily the best battalion commander we had. Never mentions him again. Um, in and then in the Crookenden book, which so is what's he late, doing? Well, well, I don't know. He's just getting on with it. He's just get, yeah. running a great running a great battalion, winning his battles. And it, but it's really really interesting because because the because and he's obviously he's one of those people who is absolutely brimful of um, you know nous and uh, and. You know, and he is he's pretty well experienced for North Africa, but again it's a completely different And They're Sicily, a, of course. Yeah. Well Sicily, but the role is so different by the time they get to D Day because they've worked it out. And also what happens is Six Airborne, for instance, that you know, they they have the special service brigade added to them, um, you know, and, and some armoured support, and they basically just become an infantry uh yeah. line line division. Up on the Breville Ridge, don't they? Up on the Breville Ridge, Bois de Bevon, uh, you know, on the fight keeping that Denying the Germans, uh, you know, uh, that counterflank. And the Germans never really, never really try uh, meaningfully. Um, once once the Bois de Bavon's been taken, you know, once the British have control of the Bois de Bavon, there's, ne there's never really a proper German effort. Because after all, there's all the tanks coming round to the, you know, the British efforts to the west of Caen and they're being drawn into that. But it's it's just, re it's really, really interesting because, because, you know, they're six airborne are one hundred percent green. They have, you know, they've got a spine of officers through them, but they're one hundred percent green. So it must be the training. The training must be really good. The, the you know, I think the training, the training is as good as it can be. Yeah. In the circumstances, and, and one of the big circumstances, one of the big barriers is the scale of. You know, you don't have batters in Canada yeah. where you can sort of career off and fire as yeah. much lead as you like. Yeah. You know, it's it's tiny UK and and. Yeah. and as we know, Britain is is tiny. It really is small. And what what else do you do? Yeah, there is yeah. there is no alternative. So all you know, you've got the battle schools. You've got all the kind of training of jumping out of landing craft. And frankly, all that training of jumping in and out of landing craft clearly pays off because when you have that mayhem on D Day itself with the weather and everything, they pull it off. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I was doing that Sherwood Rangers book and looking at all those aerial photographs, you, you suddenly had this complete clarity. 
of just how chaotic it must have been yeah. on DK. Yeah. And, and also how quickly they're adapting to not landing where yeah. they're supposed to land. And it's like, yeah. okay, but we know enough. We're trained well enough to be able to adapt to this different stretch of the beach from what we're yeah. expecting. Yeah, yeah. And and, and that's and got also, to be down to the training. But also, but also that shows that what you're what you've been trained to do is contact the enemy and destroy him, not get hung up on locations. Right. Which, are, which is our, uh, you know, yeah, in the conversation we were talking about not so long ago. Is that's that's Francis Tuca's big thing. He says it's not about location points. It's about contacting the enemy and destroying him and using manoeuvre to do it. Maneuver, yeah. maneuver and firepower that you that if you get hung up on a thing like the monastery at Monte Cassino, you 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 you'll get stuck because you're not yep. thinking you're not thinking about okay well how do I get round it how do I bypass it and it, and so they've obviously been trained that the thing is to 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 be savvy enough about where the enemy's likely to be to contact him and destroy him rather than go oh well you know we're in the wrong place so, which which after all if supposedly the British the British Army's problem is that people go well we're in the wrong place can't do anything about that you know because we lack initiative because we've not been trained in initiative then th th that brings d-day itself brings the lie to that idea doesn't it which is the yeah you know uh anyway we're going to take a very quick break then we need to talk about a lloyd carrier don't we jim because we were we we're supposed to have done well wow, briefly yeah. briefly yeah briefly okay <laughs> uh so we're taking a break now we'll see you in a tick 10 years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Velux XC. Juvederm Velux XC is an ejectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Velux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. Um, so, Jim, we need to just talk about <laughs> about the because the pot is the podcast acquisition, isn't it? Podcast acquisition is the Lloyd Carrier. Yeah, it was it was really exciting. So we went down to I went down with Marcus and uh, with Richard, who is yeah. one of the partners in this project. Marcus Bailey is going to be doing all the all the restoration work, and he's a young mechanical engineer. And the idea is to sort of chart the progress of the restoration of this of this Lloyd Carrier, um, but also to um, sort of help establish a, a new generation of young. Yeah, mechanics and engineers that know about this kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, and Marcus is a wonderful chap. And um, anyway, so we went we went to get it from from 
down in Chichester. Yep. <laughs> I've got to say, when I first saw it, I thought, okay, yeah, that does look like the remains of a carrier. But <laughs> but the remains was the kind of the optimum <laughs> word, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was pretty rusty, but 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 it all started to sort of clarify because the most amazing thing is, although it, the um, carrier was was designed and manufactured by um, the Vivian Lloyd company. Yep. Um, who was a um, an MC winning captain from the First World War yeah. um, and a post-war engineer. Yeah. Um, Lloyd uses the chassis of yeah, a Fordson truck. Yeah, he's no fool. Um, that, that's, what's, that's what's really interesting about this, isn't it? Is it's made of existing yeah. parts. Yes. So obviously a, a Fordson truck is longer than the carrier. Yeah. But when you look, when I looked at the rather slightly uh, rust-encrusted existing chassis on our yeah. carrier... Yeah. Um, I thought, gosh, okay, well, that's quite a lot smaller. But you can see that it's one and exactly the same, along with the same drive shaft, the same differentials, yeah. all the rest of it, yeah. and, and axis, axes. Um, it's exactly the same as the Fordson truck. And there was a Fordson truck chassis with its steering wheel, four yeah. wheels, yeah. all the rest of it, um, looking a little bit longer. But but the basic, you, you can see where you would chop it off and you could see how you would change it. But Marcus just looked at that and went, oh, that's just absolutely perfect. That's completely mint. That's, you know, not, not a problem at all. Like, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Then it also came with a set of completely set, um, uh, a complete set of wheels with rubber on, which hadn't yeah. perished at all. Amazing. And, that is amazing. Uh, uh, amazing. And uh, Marcus just looked at that and said, oh, yeah, give, give those wheels a quick shot blast. They'll be absolutely good as new. So you just think, okay, great. Um, then there's all the ditto, all the suspension. Yeah. So all those, we've got another set of all the suspension. Then he's looking at the um, at the Ford, I think, is it a V8? I think it's a V8 engine. Yeah. Um, and again, he thought that looked okay. The the, the, um, the transmission, the gearbox looked a little bit kind of sort of rusty on the outside. But again, Marcus and Richard were kind of sort of, you know, not doing too much teeth sucking at all on that one. I mean, they said, yeah, it might look a bit rusty on the inside. But he said, bottom dollar, it'll be fine on the inside. He said, you know, it might need a bit of work. But, you know, there was nothing. He wasn't remotely daunted by any of this. So anyway, so we, we we loaded it all up at kind of, you know, sort of how do we strap it all down so that it was on the back of an Ivor Williams trailer, two two Ivor Williams trailers, and we, and we sort of took it all the way back to Wiltshire and we managed to get the, the old body in. And, and bless him, I mean, you know, Marcus has already got to work. He's completely, he's taken off the old tracks from the from the original and he, he's he's meticulously photographing every bit of it and, and everything that he does, he photographs. So he's got a record of every step Excellent. of the way. And, Excellent. you know, he, he's absolutely mustard king. I mean, he, he really couldn't be keener, which is... Um, the which Dewey. is great. But anyway, we did we did record a little podcast while we were going about. Oh, brilliant. It. Um, so I think that's going to come out on Thursday or next week or something. But um, yeah, no, it's, it, it was it was a it was a amazingly exciting day. I have to say, it really, really was. And um, and what do we know about the, what do we know of its provenance? Well, they made, they this made is 20, interesting. They made twenty nine thousand, so uh, twenty six thousand, so. twenty six thousand of these, which were then yeah. obviously it was a bit like kind of the Spitfire and Supermarine. They yeah. weren't all made by Supermarine itself. Yeah. You know, Lloyd was a pretty small company, and so lots yeah. of them were made by Ford um, yeah. and by um, Dennis. You know, who still make yeah. trucks and things like that, and the Wolseley Company car company. Yeah. Um, our one was found in um at a farm in. Um, in near Bethune in um, right. on the Somme, right. and the guy who found it said, 
be careful of reading too much into that because you said you know typically what you you wouldn't sort of have second army kind of passing through yeah. and oh oh dear my loy carriers yeah gone kaput i'll just leave it by this farm for the yeah. farmer to use so what yeah. tended to happen was you know they they'd end up you know might get damaged or something they'd end up at some repair depot they might go back to the front they might not go to the front but after the war they're all kind of auctioned off yeah and there'll be a kind of sort of you know an auction of old kits and trucks and stuff and carriers and lots of farmers bought them because they're ideal farm vehicles for towing yeah, yeah. and dragging stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the tracks on ours have got an extra bit of metal every kind of fourth track, every fourth section. Right. For digging into deeper ground. Oh, that's interesting. And, and his view was it had been used in forestry work. Right. Okay. Who knows? So Who knows? It, it was probably did see service in northern France. Yeah, but, but whether it was left there in Betune on its way through, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. or whether it was sort of got there afterwards, is you know anyone's guess. I mean, we're we what they're going to do is try and find a sort of a serial number somewhere. Yeah, which then gives us the lead we do want. Do some tech in. Do some tech yeah, in. Yeah. yeah, do some tech in on it. But yeah, <laughs> but no, it's exciting. So um, you know, he's he, you know got cleared out that that um help Marcus um clear out that workshop which was the- taken over, and that was pretty grim. The $64,000 question that our listeners will be dying to hear the answer to. Is how long is it going to take to do? Yeah, exactly. What's our time scale? I don't know. I mean, you know, the, both Marcus and Richard are very keen to get on with it. So, you know, a year maybe? Right. That kind of neck of the woods? That sounds good. I mean, that it doesn't sound good. too long, does it? I mean, otherwise, so, otherwise it just gets a bit boring, doesn't it? Maybe in time for Warfest Dry. Yeah, Warfest Dry, not Warfest Fire, I think. Yeah, yeah. But we might we might kind of bring up what we've got on the Warfest Fire. <laughs> Fantastic. It's it's an amazing thing though. I mean, yeah. the other thing is all the panels, all the kind of sort of metal work that goes around it is is all there. That's all. Yeah. I mean, it would be fascinating to know if we In could what we can find out about it, and mm. you know, cause ideally you want to return it to its original markings, don't you? That's the. Well, yeah. I mean, our sort of vague plan at the moment is to do it in honour of um, of Ginger Pierce, yeah, um, and yeah, do it in yeah, the fourth yeah, door. Yeah. So it's part of yeah. the um, of the forty third Wessex Division, yeah. Um, and obviously, Ginger was a was a Bren gun was a Bren gunner on a carrier yeah. Yeah. with the fourth door sits in the carrier platoon. Yeah. But but yeah, if we find um, if we find a bit more information, find out that it was actually part of the you know fifty second yeah. Lowland Division. Then, yeah. Yeah, we'll have a well, uh, the, the, my my pal who does the decals for airfix that's his job yeah <laughs> um, he's keen to help he's keen to help which is kind of yeah that's kind of exciting yeah yeah he, no, did, the, that's he did the markings on the new on the new um uh cromwell kit they did recently anyway, nice uh, yeah yeah very, good. Very, very strong um anyway um uh, so we will be documenting the restoration of the carrier on our twitter which is at we have ways pod um but to see exclusive videos of the vehicle make sure to join us on our member site which is patreon dot com slash we have ways p-a-t-r-e-o-n um uh um so that there is there they were there last week as james says to record the carrier's arrival that's being edited and stuck <laughs> together now um and of course mondays um monday nights uh live cast stuff is still going on um yep. if you join the patreon and a pair of silver wings read by uh willow may murray um uh, is still going so we've because if you don't know about our patreon 
Basically, there's additional content in the form of some films. You get to see stuff first. And we've done a series of audio books of things that are out of print or things that are still in print, like James's uh, Second World War fiction read by a variety of people, um, myself included. And if that's your bag, um, it's uh, it's on the Patreon. Now, should we do a couple? Have we got time for a couple of questions, Jim? We definitely got a couple. We were going to talk about MacArthur. Oh, and, let's talk and about Manila. Of, of let's talk and about Manila. Or or, no, or do we save that for another one? No, let's know. talk. Let's talk about Manila because well, um, and MacArthur because I was I was thinking about operations in the Second World War by the Allies, which were unnecessary. <laughs> How, how often was blood spilled that didn't need to be spilled? Oh, God. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not just thinking sort of wise after the event. I'm thinking kind of at the time where you're sort of thinking, really? You know, did you need to go straight through the Hurtcombe Forest, for example? Yeah. Possibly not, you know. Yeah. Um, did you... I mean, did you need to go to Arnhem? I don't know. But but I won't go into that one. But... but, but but the interesting thing about the Philippines is, is there is this complete split between the Navy and the Army yeah. about what you should do. So, the, yeah. so the, there's this whole plan about let's use China, let's kind of help the Chinese and, 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 resuscitate. And the, and the reason we're talking about this is this is happening at the same time as Veritable, right? Isn't it? This is happening at the same time as Veritable, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, exactly. But yes, exactly, in 1945, February, but, January, oh my, February, But also... Oh my God! When you start reading about it, oh uh, of... yes, yes, but 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 it needs some context, yeah. Because you know the Americans' initial plan is well, let's help kind of you know get the Nash, Chiang Kai Shek's nationalist army into some kind of shape, and then they, we can help them kind of fight back against the the Japanese. And the great thing is, is you can you know you're then sponsoring other people to do the hard yard so that yeah, your yeah. young men don't have yeah. to fight. And it's all very sensible. But it becomes very very clear pretty quickly that that is just not going to be possible because yeah. they're so impoverished. Yeah. You know, the Chinese army is so impoverished. The civilians around are so impoverished. They're so corrupt um, in China. It, yeah. it, it's just an absolute basket case, and it's just never, ever going to happen. Yeah. Then you've got the, the British are completely kind of totally overstretched in what they're already doing, and their hands yeah. are full with Burma and defending Northeast India and all the rest yeah. of it. So yeah. they're not going to help. So... Ernest King, who has always been very keen on a kind of Pacific first, not a Germany first policy anyway. And he's the overall head of the U.S. head of the of the Navy. He's on the joint. Uh, you know, he's a, one of the U.S. chiefs of staff on the Joint Chiefs yeah. of Staff and all the rest. Yeah. He's, he's absolutely one of the top bods. And he is the biggest kind of sort of champion um, uh, for, for the Pacific policy um, other than MacArthur. And General MacArthur is the supreme allied commander in yeah. the southwest pacific yeah and he has come out of retirement um once the war begins yeah and he is the only field marshal in the u.s army uh um he gets a, a that appointment when he goes back he is also an ex-chief of staff of the u.s army yeah. from 1930 to 1935 yeah. usually a four four-year post except in the exceptional circumstances of the second world war um, um, but he does an extra year and that takes him up to 1935 and then he goes over to back over to the Philippines where he's already been sort of you know the top military guy in the 1920s yeah. so it's a place he knows incredibly well even in the start of his career in, in sort of 1905 or 1906 or something he goes over his father's in the army yeah. um, as well and he gets appointed as his father's ADC in Tokyo and then in Hong Kong yeah. and then in India and Quetta and all the rest of it so he yeah. really 
really does know the Far East. There's this amazing quote from um, someone who met him in 1905 in, in Tokyo. And he says, Arthur MacArthur, who is MacArthur's father, yeah. was the most flamboyantly egotistical man I'd ever seen until I met his son. <laughs> And this is one of his sort of problems is he's got, you know, he's he's a sort of Trump-like narcissist yep. um, and, and massive ego uh, and also a bit my way or the highway. Well, and, and, I mean, he, and, and you have this, 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 this sort of, on the one hand, you've got Ernest Kick going, it's all got to be about the Navy. It's about strangling Japan. It's about cutting off all their supplies. It's about sinking all their ships, yeah. all of which sounds incredibly sensible to me. Yeah. And then you've got MacArthur going, I've been kicked out of Philippines. Philippines is my manor. I will return. I want and, a battle. And if that takes, uh, yeah, I want a battle. I'm going to win. Um, I'm going to kick that Jap ass. And and if that takes lots of American lives and, and Filipino civilian lives as well, that's the price you have to pay, but that's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. But Ernest King, who has been getting on with the job of, of isolating isolating Japan, is, by the beginning of 1945, has, has done an incredible job. I mean, I mean, mainly US submarines, which we talked about before, mm. have been responsible for destroying two-thirds of the shipping that the Japanese begun in 1944 by the end of 1944. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it is absolutely incredible the amount of shipping, Japanese shipping that is going to the bottom, predominantly sunk by by um, US submarines. And also in 1944, you have these two big naval battles. You have the Battle of the Philippine Sea in June 1944, and then you have the Battle of Leyte Gulf at yeah. the end of October 1944. And those are the two last throws of the dice of the Japanese combined fleet. And they're finished. And, yeah. and they're finished because they can't possibly keep up. And we were talking about it the other day, weren't we, about, about the carrier Taiho, which is yeah. so sophisticated and so brilliant, but yeah. no one actually knows how to kind of man it. Yeah, and, yeah. and of course, it gets sunk in its first engagement at the Battle of the Philippine Sea on whatever it was, the 19th of, yeah. 26th of June or whatever it is, 19th of June, 1944. And so you can't help but thinking think that King is completely right. Yeah. But they've done this landing on Leyte. So, so the oh, Philippines, for those who don't know, Philippines is an archipelago. So it's, it's, it's this huge archipelago of, of lots of sort of jagged shaped islands, of which Leyte yeah. is one of the smallest ones in the sort of central southern bit. Yeah. They've taken that, and that's all fine. Then they've taken Mindoro, which is an island south of Luzon and south of Manila, Manila, Manila yeah. Bay. And it's kind of, what's the point of taking Luzon? Because on Luzon, there is... General Yamashita's 14th Army. 234,000 Japanese And soldiers. the rest, 267,000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, and, and you end up with this um, extraordinary thing where MacArthur doesn't believe the intelligence estimates, don't you? It's, it's not that he, no, he doesn't, he does believe it. He refuses to accept, he just, just ignores well, it. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, goes yeah. rubbish, he goes bunk. It's yeah. only 152,000. Yeah. You know, but 152,000 is still... An awful lot of Japanese. Well, well, it's what he's got. It's what, what MacArthur has at his disposal, basically, isn't it? So it's one to it's it, it it's one to one, isn't it? Um, so he's so yes. He, so which is after all, what is it? Three to one. We're always told is the um, ideal a, a attacking ratio, isn't it? And it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he doesn't really he he doesn't have that. What he does have, of course, is is he has massive force multipliers because the Americans have 
considerably larger amounts of weaponry than the Japanese do. The Japanese have men, but they're mainly armed with, yeah. you know, small artillery pieces, only 150 light tanks, um, mortars, machine guns, rifles, yeah. and grenades, and, and, and obviously swords. Um, yeah. What they don't have is heavy guns. They don't have yeah. many anti-tank anti guns. They don't yes. have that huge arsenal but, but, of supplies that the Americans have. But what they also, but what they do have... Um, and, is the ability, and, you know, is they're on the defence. Well, well and, the, and the determination to fight until they're all dead. So, it, yes. you know, the, 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 you, the, the interesting thing about this is you, you can always present the way the, 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 the way the odds are stacked against the Japanese. Um, and if you would say, if they were a Western army, you'd think, well, they're going to, you know, they're going to throw in the towel then. If these were, yeah. if these were British soldiers faced with these disadvantages, they'd, um, they'd, they'd, say, they'd say they'd surrender. It wouldn't be worth it. No, drawbridge the, down, flag up. Exactly. Whereas what you end up with is a house by house battle in Manila. I well, mean, it's... and the rest of it. So, so, yeah, so yeah. Yamashita, Yamashita is 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 a brilliant, brilliant general. Yeah. Um, he's known as the Tiger of Malaya, and that's because of his brilliant performance in 1942, where you know he sweeps into Malaya, completely knocks out all the British. He's the you know commander of of the capture of Singapore and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. You know, the, 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 these are. This this is brilliant method, brilliant operational method, brilliant tactical method. You know, yeah. he's a, he's a very very learned man. Um, he, and compared with a lot of Japanese generals, he's sort of marginally more humane than most of them, um, yeah. and he's certainly more intellectual. And, and he completely understands what the Americans are about. He understands what they're going to do. Uh, and Luzon is a kind of odd shaped island, very sort of tall it's sort of bulbous the kind of sort of mountainous at the top yeah and there's this there is this um sort of valley that goes down from he he, he, he basically realizes where they're going to land yeah um which is in the Lingayen gulf which is this sort of not i don't know it's sort of north well north of, of manila then there's this sort of western ridge of of mountains that runs down to the Bataan peninsula then there is um another eastern ridge of mountains which then extends up into the northern part of luzon but in the middle of that running from the lingayen gulf all the way down to manila and the uh, manilan gulf is this sort of lower valley yeah and and yamashita completely predicts that general uh, walter kruger who is the german-born general of the yeah. u.s sikh army is going to land in the Lingayen Gulf and then make helpful ever to Clark Field, which is the major airfield complex, and yeah. then go down into Manila. Yeah. And of course, that's exactly what happens. And so he he divides his 267,000 strong force of 14th Army into these different groups. So he's got the Shobu group, which is the largest, and that's uh, 150,000 men. And they're they're going to be in the Carabello Mountains, which is yeah. the mountains to kind of sort of to the east of Lingayen Gulf, sort of spreading up up northwards and, and kind of yeah. running down the kind of eastern spine of 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 Luzon, and, and hitting the flanks of the Americans as they're heading southwards towards um, Manila. Um, so that's the that's the Shobu group, and then he's got the Shimbu group which is 80,000 strong. And they're going to be in the Sierra um, Madre Mountains, which are yeah. east of Manila, directly yeah. east of Manila. Then there's the Kembu group, which is going to be in the, in the Zambales Mountains, which is immediately west of, um, of Manila. Yeah. 
And then you've got the naval troops, which is the fourth group, um, under yes. Rear Admiral Iwabushi well, Sanji. And and that's the that's the, the and problem. that's the nub that's, of it. That's the nub of it. I mean, the the thing is, is uh, uh, Yamashita isn't fighting for a victory, is he? He knows he can't win. No, he's fighting. He's fighting to hold hold Luzon and grind down the Americans for as long as but, possible. He knows but, he's beat. But 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 what the important thing to remember is why he's doing that. He's doing that to strengthen the government's hand in negotiation when it comes to a peace treaty. Yes. And the idea is to get the Americans to spill so much blood that in the American, in the end, the Americans think it's not worth it. And yes. the unconditional surrender comes off the table. Japan, you know, can have basically some say in a post-war settlement. And that's why, exactly. that's why they're fighting, fighting on now, or at least yes. Yamashita's fighting on now. And he's doing things that reflect that attitude in that he's trying to make sure that American prisoners of war are properly treated. He's trying to yep. make sure that um, civilian population is dealt with in a humanitarian way. He's 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 yes. ba- it, I, 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 and in lots of ways it's an echo. It's an echo a bit of you you know tales of German officers in the Western Front who start suddenly behaving with their right. prisoners because they're thinking, well, the game's up. We're still fighting, but he he openly expresses that it's to strengthen the government's hand at the negotiating yes. table in a way that ge- in a way that you you see Germans not talking like that. They just want to go they. You know they're going down with the sinking ship. I mean, it, it, it's really, but it's really interesting to to have that, and then that such a brutal campaign should even then should well, come of that. Is what happens but is that's his, the navy, his, but that's the navy, isn't it? Well, this is the problem because his instructions to Admiral Errol Bushy are destroy all the port facilities and then bug out and join the um, the Shobu group. Um, uh, not Shobu Group, sorry, sorry, the um, the group in the uh, Sierra Madre, the Shimbu Group in the Sierra Madre Mountains yeah, to the east yeah. of Manila. Yeah. But Iwabushi's in the in the navy and not the army. So, although Yamashita is overranks him, is a different army and uh, yeah. army and navy. The Imperial Japanese Army and Navy have never been particularly good bedfellows. Yeah, yeah. In, in any part of the war. Yeah. And so when the when the 37th Infantry Division and the 1st Cavalry Division are sent south by Kruger to kind of rush Manila. And yeah. there is then the, um, the is it the 11th Airborne Division, I think, for, um, from 8th Army, which is Eichelberger's, which yeah. I remember we were talking to John McManus about some, yeah, some yeah. months ago. Um, Eichelberger's 8th Army, um, uh, Army then um, also land a couple of divisions as well. Yeah. And so these three divisions are kind of sort of homing in on, on Manila. And at that point, Admiral Iwaboshi goes, actually, do you know what? No, we're going to defend, we're going yeah. to defend Manila. And Yamashita, who's in his sort of mountain headquarters, can't really do anything about it. And so what happens was instead of having this sort of triumphal return from MacArthur on his birthday on the 26th of January, in actual fact, they're behind schedule anyway. So that comes and goes. Um, and then they find that um, actually the Japanese are defending every sort of house, every street. Um, every, every suburb yeah. and it just turns into an absolute bloodbath and, well, and it's a sort of repetition of the rape of Nanking by the but, Japanese. But it starts off as the Americans as they come into the city are mobbed by crowds, there's celebrations there's a brewery yep. that they get their That's hands right. on and they drink dry, GIs drinking beer from helmets and all that That's and right. The, and, and the thing of you know the crowds, the crowds gathering and celebrating and the GIs, the GIs getting laid and all this sort of you know, we vic- victory stuff, and then the yep. and then the Japanese start mortaring the crowds, and the crowds all disappear, and the soldiers are left to defend themselves. And then 
mortaring stops, the crowds come back out and carry on partying. And there's this very odd, um, you know, they think they're being liberated. And the, and the, like you say, the, the, the Japanese Navy are not are not going to have that. It's quite it's it's quite extraordinary. It turns into, you know, dry, rolling howitzers up the street and firing at buildings at point blank range and having to burn buildings completely to the ground. And then the air raid shelters under the buildings being full of Japanese and then being sealed in there. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it, yeah. It's, 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 it's absolutely, absolutely important. And there is also this moment where they they liberate Santos uh, Thomas University on the 3rd of February. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and there's some 500 prisoners there, of which 275 are Americans who were captured back in 1942. And of course, you know, in the kind of two and a half years since that's happened, the whole world has just completely changed. You know, yeah. and when Americans, you know, Americans are prisoners there, they're still wearing Tommy helmets, or would have been still wearing Tommy yeah. helmets last time they were in action. And suddenly, these all these GIs looking completely different. Yeah, with with massively sophisticated weaponry, yeah. and and it's sort of like an alien world. Yeah. Um, but I think what's what's just it is so horrific is is it's a repeat of the rape of Nanking. Yeah, so completely. lots of lots of civilians are raped. There's this absolutely horrible description in, in um, uh, Max Hastings' book about this 15 year old girl being raped in the street, and then her the person who has assaulted her then gets out his bayonet and slits her from her kind of you know from right up the middle. And leaves her to die. And women and children are kind of hustled into into um, halls and and, and buildings. Yeah. And the, the, you know they they are told the orders are kill lots of civilians, but don't waste ammunition on it. So kill them another way. In other yeah. words, burn them, bayonet them, yeah. behead them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it is an it is an absolute horror story. Yeah, of, of the first order, and I, you know, I've got to say, I I've, I found the whole thing incredibly shocking. Well, it's hundred um, hundred thousand people in in uh, who live in Manila are killed. Hundred thousand people killed, and, and you know, most of the most of the um the, the Japanese naval force are killed as well. About three and a half thousand managed to escape. Yeah, um, and I think eight thousand there's eight thousand um American casualties, taking Manila. But yeah. 100,000 civilians, it's, it's just, yeah. it's so hard to get your, your head around that, that number. And also, of course, you know, Manila has this reputation of being, you know, one of the most beautiful cities in the Far East. Yeah. You, you know, it's this sort of, Intramuros is this um, yeah. ancient sort of Spanish walled city, you know, it's yeah. known for its sort of beautiful cobbled streets and its terraces and you know, facades and uh, and all the rest of it. And and what happens is as the Americans get stuck, they, they do what they always it. do and what the Allies always do, which is, you know, no building is worth more than kind of American blood. So therefore it has to be destroyed. And so out come these 155 millimeter artillery pieces. Yeah. And they're firing these at kind of point blank range at kind of beautiful old buildings and colonial yeah. buildings and yeah. what have you yeah and the whole place is just absolutely smashed and of course a lot of those far east buildings apart from the colonial buildings um are wooden and they get burned to the ground and you know you know manila is just utterly utterly destroyed yeah yeah the heart of it is just completely ripped out and so it's it's a tragic ter this terrible tragedy on so many different levels well and, and there and is this big burning question that the whole thing was probably well, completely unnecessary. That's what I was just going to get to is that it's, it, it, you know, it's so that MacArthur can return on his birthday. And, that, and it, 
None of it, and it didn't happen anyway. None of that comes to pass, and 100,000 civilians are killed in the process. I mean, it's... Yeah, but, but, it, get, but it gets worse, because Manila finally falls on the 3rd of March, but Luzon is still being defended at the end yeah. of the war. Yeah. You know, there's still Japanese... You know, Japanese are starving. They're dying of typhus. They're kind of eating bats to survive. They're, they're cannibalising their, their dead yeah. to, to survive, but they're still holding out. It's reckoned that that a million Filipinos are killed during the Second World War, most of which is in from January to August 1945. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is it is truly, truly. And it, again, this brings you back. This, the, all of this feeds into the decisions that lead up to the use of the atomic bomb. That, that it's it's not just about the invasion of Japan, is it? It's about dealing with the Japanese full stop, wherever they are. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's this. It's mounting anger, frustration. That why are you still fighting? Yeah. Why aren't you surrendering? Like any normal enemy would surrender at this state of the war. You know, you've got eighty-eight yeah. percent of your your economy is devoted to defence by nineteen kind of forty by the end of nineteen forty-four. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely stuffed. You're completely strangled. You know, and, and and that goes to the you know the fire bombing of Tokyo as well, which we should talk about at another time. But 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 you know, I mean, if you look at them, it's it's really worth looking at Google Google Earth and having a look at the Philippines and looking at Luzon. I mean, it is an island. There's you know there's there's no getting away from it. Yeah. And if it's an island, uh, and the Japanese are on it, then Just leave them there. Leave them there. You, you know, to... it's the same with Peleliu. I mean, Peleliu yeah. is exactly the same. There's seven by three that they insist yeah. on fighting. They, they don't need to. Yeah. You know, particularly since Ernest King's, Admiral King's naval policy is, is working so well. Yeah. They have complete command of the Pacific Seas. But if you've got an army, Jim, you're going to use it, aren't you? I mean, it's... Uh... Well, you are if you're MacArthur. Yeah. And the amazing thing is how he's allowed to get away with it and he's allowed to get away with it because he's so far away and because because the, the um, other american chiefs of staff and the combined chiefs of staff have got their hands full destroying hitler well and also it's keeping him occupied i mean, it, i mean it's, i mean on the subject of um other people destroying hitler he's very unhappy that eisenhower who was his junior is is sort of um uh you know getting more attention than him isn't he he's very he's very yep. pissed off about that um yeah uh, and sort of threatens to throw his toys out the pram about it as well doesn't he there's that yeah, uh, completely you know uh, to do with war loans and all that sort of stuff if ike's name's above his he won't take part and all that sort of thing sort of, uh, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. egotism yeah. is um is on another scale anyway yeah he's, he's clearly a bit mad yeah that's all we got time for i'm afraid uh on that note of macarthur's mad we'll, we'll leave that hanging um <laughs> i mean like operation veritable though we started off with good intentions and got distracted along the way we're back on thursday with a stunning episode featuring u.s historian tammy davis biddle who until she recently retired was the professor of national security at the u.s army war college and we're talking about accelerationism in war and the bombing campaign and the last phase of the strategic bombing campaign in europe um, yep. And how you get your head around that, how they end up in that set of, set of circumstances from from 1939, where they don't want to damage German private property to firebombing entire cities. Like, how do you do that yep. in six years flat? Yep. Then on Sunday, we've got more of your family stories. And it's a lovely series. We're, I'm really enjoying reading those. Uh, uh, keep sending them in. We're building up a wonderful range of personal histories. Thank you all once again for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. Cheerio.